This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, and Upland Gun Company. This episode of the show, we talk Virginia upland hunting with certified wildlife biologist and small game project leader for the Virginia DWR, Mark Puckett. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 166. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the show. Got a great interview coming up for you in just a moment. But as always, I've got a few updates and announcements for you all. Thank you to Patreon supporters of the Birdshot Podcast. There's still just a little bit of time left in the month of February for those to sign up to be eligible for the February Patreon giveaway, which happens to be a complete video course series from Upland Institute or an Onyx Hunt Elite subscription card winner's choice on that. Thank you to all those that have signed up as Patreon supporters already. I just sent out a request to get everyone's mailing address so I can ship those Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers out to Patreon members very soon. Don't forget, you can save 20% on your next subscription to Onyx Hunt with the code BSP20. That's BSP20. Whether you are signing up for the first time or renewing as an existing user of Onyx Hunt, use that promo code BSP20. Know where you stand with Onyx Hunt. And as we are talking quail today, fitting to remind you of the message I shared on the last episode from our friends over at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, attention landowners, the Conservation Reserve Program CRP is now open. CRP is a great opportunity for those hard-to-farm acres. It also helps improve a farm's profitability, delivers high-quality wildlife habitat, cleaner water, and healthier soils. The CRP sign-up is going on right now through March 11th. Find a local Pheasants Forever biologist at pheasantsforever.org slash CRP or 
Visit your local USDA service center. Farm the best, CRP the rest. Plenty of habitat and agricultural related conversation on our show today with Mark Puckett. More to come on that. Another reminder to rate, review, subscribe, follow the podcast wherever you're listening out there, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or one of the other major podcast players. If they've got a subscribe or follow button or a rating or review, please consider doing any and or all of those things. Not only does it provide valuable feedback to me, it does support the show in numerous ways, helps us out in rankings, makes the show more findable. Every little bit counts to making the Birdshot podcast bigger and better, and I thank you for considering that. All right, let's get into our show today. This interview came about as a result of a listener of the show having a chance encounter with our guest today in the field. And anyways, Rob made the connection between me and our guest today, Mark Puckett, and I'm so glad that he did. Thank you, Rob, for thinking of the show. And as a result of that, I had a very enjoyable conversation with Mark Puckett, wildlife biologist and small game project leader for the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources. Mark and I caught up, checked in on some of his recent upland bird hunts. We talked plenty of Virginia upland hunting, mostly woodcock and quail. Talked about some of the threats to those birds, some of the opportunities that Virginia upland hunters have. We discussed Mark's hunter survey and even put out a little call to anybody listening that perhaps does hunt in Virginia or plans to. You'll hear more about it on our show today, but you might be able to help out Mark and the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources and the future of quail in Virginia. Mark is a passionate natural resources professional, upland bird hunter, bird dog lover, and much more. And all of that is abundantly clear in the conversation you'll hear today. So with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast, small game project leader from the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources, Mark Puckett. jump right into it, Mark, and I'd like to welcome you to Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm excited to be on. So tell me a hunting story, Mark. I, I think it's still hunting season down there, and I think you've been lucky enough to be out chasing birds while I'm up here buried in snow. Yeah, our bird season this year was a little on the slow side. Uh, the woodcock weren't here like they normally are. I think it was very dry early on, but I did have a couple of good hunts. Uh, one day I went out, my dog Tilly and I, and we, we hunted all afternoon, and we found two coveys of quail and five woodcock, and we didn't bring anything home, but we had a great time. I ended up walking nine and a half miles that day, so that's, we, we do a lot of walking here in Virginia, and uh, but it was a, a good day to be out. And uh, I ran into uh, another bird hunter that day, which kind of led us to this, this call today. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mutual mutual connection. I have I have not met Rob in person, but he is. Uh, I believe he was a listener of the show prior to and or had listened at least. And now he's. I've been talking to him through uh, Upland Gun Company as he's he's looking at one of our guns. So that's been fun and sort of a chance meeting between you two uh, that led to led to this this podcast. So yeah, I'm 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 certainly grateful for that chance meeting. And with that in mind, Mark, why don't you, we'll back up a little bit. Why don't you give us a little bit of intro as far as who you are, what you do for a living, and how you got into chasing bird dogs? Well, Mark Puckett again, and I'm the small game project leader and the private lands program leader for Department of Wildlife Resources. And 
I studied wildlife and forestry many, many years ago, and uh, just by chance ended up studying bobwhite quail for my master's degree. Really? Yeah, I still remember the day, uh, 1992. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. We were about to graduate from Virginia Tech, and one of my good friends had hired me as a technician on a black bear project that summer, and I was looking for a graduate project. Didn't really know much about the process, to be honest. I guess I was too naive to know that I may not not even get a graduate project, but he came down the <laughs> hall with a flyer, and that flyer advertised a position at North Carolina State, which was studying Bob White Quail. And I ended up applying, and uh, you know, one thing led to another. I did end up studying quail in eastern North Carolina, and while studying quail, I met several mentors uh, all my life i had wanted to be a bird hunter to be honest with you i never really knew how to become a bird hunter i had i had known bird hunters as a kid my dad hunted but we were rabbit hunters mostly and deer hunters and hmm. we would walk up birds but we didn't have a bird dog but uh the barber in pulaski of all places uh, his name was royce lookerbill and he was known as a bird hunter, the best bird hunter around. And I still remember sitting in that barber shop as a seven or eight year old and all of the attorneys and folks from across the street in the courthouse would come over and he was the man, you know, they asked him everything about birds and bird dogs. And it was always mystery to me how you became, became someone like him. Uh, he was a true Southern gentleman. That was so long ago. All the decades passed. Well, anyway, ending up at North Carolina State, my major professor, Pete Bromley, was a bird hunter. And also my mentor, uh, who was working on his Ph.D., I won't drop any names. He's He is the CEO of a major quail research institution now. <laughs> but <laughs> at the time, uh, before he was famous, he was my bird hunting mentor as well. So really just kind of by chance, ended up working with quail and running into these folks who were willing to mentor a young bird hunter and put up with a lot of my mistakes and, and, and have patience in teaching me how to become a bird hunter. And so it was there that I got my first bird dog. I was a, a broke graduate student and I managed to scrape together $250 to buy my, my first Llewellyn setter. And I've been bird hunting ever since then and i've had had bird dogs ever since that time so that's super cool if i take a shot in the dark and say dr dale rollins of rolling plains would i is that your mentor no no actually uh from tall timbers again oh okay not not dropping names but yeah we were we were friends and uh and bill was able to take me under his wing back in those days 30 years ago now and uh and bring me along as a bird hunter. So it just emphasizes, I think, in upland bird hunting, how important it is to have a mentor, somebody that is willing to spend time with you because it's, as you know, it's not the easiest form of hunting. It yeah. takes skill and time and patience. Yeah, I think, yeah, patience, persistence, you could get, I think there are, and I, I mean, you could you could say that about, I think, a lot of hunting. There, there's a, many, many things that can frustrate a new person that that has limited experience and and 
no success to speak of or to fall back on, um, you can you can really find yourself in a lot of situations that you just lack the confidence to forge ahead, right? Exactly. And, uh, of course, from there, I also started working for Department of Wildlife Resources. They had a quail research project. And they needed a technician, and that, that was my uh, foot in the door here with the department, and now going on 27 years later. So, you know, life, there, there's a lot of uh, good decisions you make, but there's also chance involved or fate, however yeah. you would like to look at it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I, was, I was smiling to myself. You said you were about to graduate college with no no idea what you wanted to do, and I'm just thinking, yeah, you and a, and a whole lot of other people, <laughs> myself included, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, but life's been good to me in that that regard. So I've, I've been involved with Upland Game Birds again since 1992. Uh, before that, through my father in hunting. Yeah, but officially since 1992. Very cool. Thinking back on the the barber shop days, I it kind of brings up some memories. You know, sort of my early exposure. I w- I was not unlike you in that. For some reason, this this idea of bird hunting got into my head and well it's I went on a on a bird hunt with my dad and but it was it was like a simple exposure and it became this obsession for me and so I I sort of was always and at that time you know you couldn't go online and just start looking at stuff so I always anytime bird hunting came up or there was a guy who lived up the street who became one of my mentors a little bit later on but he would walk down the street and he always had hunting dogs and I remember looking out the window seeing him walk down the road with his I think it was German short hairs and he he now has Britney's but just it's just interesting that that kind of stuff when you think back like where this inspiration comes from so it sounds like I mean you you were exposed to it early and it took you a little while to kind of find it on your own and also connecting with the right people but it's been kind of a lifelong journey for you so far yeah it really has and I was lucky I my father hunted, uh, his, yep. his did not hunt, but we were always outside fishing or hunting. We had a rabbit dog, a beagle, and we would flush quail occasionally and even grouse while we were rabbit hunting. And they were, they were always, uh, they just seemed just out of reach for me then, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but it, it worked out later. <laughs> so <laughs> when you fast forwarding to when you got that first bird dog, how did you, how did you find yourself? choosing a Llewellyn setter and I'm it's funny because I just finished up a a podcast yesterday that it's not out yet but it will be the listeners will have heard it now that's all about Llewellyn setters three hours of conversation about Llewellyn setters so how did you how did you decide on that you know just from reading articles and seeing the photographs reading books I read everything I could get my hands on about bird hunting but more than anything else it was just I loved the looks of that dog, and I had yeah. understood well that they were bred maybe more for the walking hunter, closer working dog, a good versatile dog. And again, I just always liked their demeanor, the ones that had been around. And uh, I mean, I love all dogs. Uh, my yeah. friends have fire hairs and short hairs and English pointers and, and just about everything out there, but I come back to the Llewellyn every time. So. <laughs> You know, just uh, lovely dogs. All the ones that I've had have been been not not just good bird dogs, but just good dogs in general. You know, good companion dogs. 
how was what do you recall from from that first dog and specifically kind you know you as the handler obviously you've got a lot to learn at that point what what are some things you recall you and that bird dog cutting your teeth on birds together oh my my dog shell she was my first first one and i my blog now is called shells covered mm. and, and of her and you know i guess i wasn't prepared for how hard-headed <laughs> and i remember uh first the first step was trying to just to get her to wear a collar just a collar to put a lead on and i thought you know that would be simple we would just buy a collar we would put the collar on her and she would run around like always and she hated that collar, and she fought <laughs> having that collar on. And I remember telling uh, telling my mentors, man, I don't know. If it's this hard just to get one to wear a collar, I don't know what's next. <laughs> so, I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's where having a mentor comes in. Yeah, and they, you're right. They, you know, just have some patience. It just takes time. Just bear with it. And they were absolutely right. And, and you know, one step after another. But with her, it was that first step of just getting her to even wear a collar. Uh, and I did get frustrated at times along the way. But I never, I was always careful not to be angry yeah. at the dog. Not the dog's fault. And, you know, it's just part of, of training a dog. So, uh, knowing how to to walk away when things aren't going good, and then yeah. come back and try it again, you know, come back and and or or quit on a high note. Yeah, if things aren't going well, try again tomorrow. Always try to be positive in your dog training. So, uh, but yeah, it was a challenge, and and I never realized, <laughs> you know, how hard headed they could be sometimes. But. <laughs> yeah, do you recall anything like? first bird exposure first points or first bird bagged or anything like that going back to that dog yeah i recall you know we trained and we were we were lucky we had a place to train and down in harnett county north carolina and uh and bill and i were actually both mentored by a gentleman named frank howard and he was an old time bird hunter tobacco farmer and he had grown up there hunting quail and he had trained more bird dogs than just about anybody uh, outside of a professional you may know and uh, so we were lucky we had a place to train he had recall pins and as long as we did work you know he, he said let's make sure this works out in both of our favor uh, he would let us come train and we would do odd jobs for him and whatnot so most of her initial points were on uh, birds from a recall pin i do remember the the first bird i got over her was a woodcock and um uh, she had a point on it along with one of my friend's dogs. And, you know, those things happen fast. It's kind of a blur. I, I remember yeah. the moment. I remember how proud I was. Uh, you know, that was a huge step from going from not having a bird dog to then having a bird dog and then to taking your first bird over your bird dog. Yeah. You know, that, that's a special moment. But, yeah, you know, I raised her there as a puppy. We did our work at Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge in eastern North Carolina. And the folks there joked that they called it Jurassic Park because uh, there were so many <laughs> red wolves, black bears, bobcats. Oh, really? <laughs> water moccasins, canebrake rattlesnakes. And 
how she survived that, I really don't know. <laughs> Sounds a bit treacherous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember letting her out one time, and she just took off. And you know, occasionally they'll run almost out of sight, and you wonder if they're ever coming back. <laughs> yeah, she did. Yeah, well, let's jump ahead a little bit. I'd like to. I guess I'd like to dive into kind of Virginia quail hunting at this point because that is that's sort of one of the one of the reasons that that Rob connected us to to talk about you guys were out were you quail hunting or were you woodcock hunting or is it a, is it a mixed bag hunt it's a mixed bag okay. hunt that, that's a great point for Virginia when the woodcock and the quail season overlap that's when you can really go out and keep your dog and some birds you, the day I was telling you about where I found two cubbies of quail and and five woodcock now to some folks that may not sound like a lot but that's pretty steady action throughout the day with fines and points. Mm-hmm. So the dog, the dog stays interested. And that's kind of what, you know, I tell folks here, you need to kind of develop a new attitude about what your goals are for bird hunting. You know, you're not going to go out and fill up a game bag in Virginia very often with quail, but you can certainly combine quail and woodcock and have some really good hunts. And and I think you mentioned it before and others, Virginia is not really known as a destination state for upland bird hunting. And I understand that. 40 or 50 years ago, it probably was. There was a lot of great bird hunting, grouse and quail in Virginia. Yeah. But now the new bird hunters, again, the exercise is great. The being outdoors, the relationship with the dog. And there's enough action here in Virginia, I think, to keep it extremely interesting for the dog and the hunter. And we do occasionally have bird hunters find a lot of quail. Uh, had one hunter this year who found 10 cubbies of quail on two different days, was averaging 44 to 5 cubbies a day. And so that that's not the norm, but it is still possible here. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we'll have woodcock flights where, you know, finding 15 or 20 in a day is not unusual. It, it's hit or miss, as you know. But Yep. But as you said, that you can you know, 15, 20 bird contacts in a day, depending on how they're spread out. I mean, that's, you could be, you're doing a lot of stuff. You're, you're going in on a lot of points and that's a lot of action for you and your bird dog. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I tell folks it's well worth doing and you just have to have, you know, reasonable expectations. Yeah. Yeah. You had sent me an article kind of about, it was titled the 21st century bird hunter and it's touching. I mean, the theme of it was really, you know, what is bird hunting like today? And it was about managing expectations and going into it with the right attitude. And I think, I mean, I think one of the things that we're lucky to have are bird dogs that, you know, they can turn a, they can turn an otherwise uneventful day into, into a a much more enjoyable one simply by doing what they do. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've never had a bad day bird hunting. I mean, you know, you have days where you, you find more than others, but just watching, and I've, I've never seen a dog that appeared unhappy to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, yeah. You know, they're happy to be out there. They're just happy to be able to run and see new things, and their joy rubs off on the hunter. You can go out there and be down or be in a bad mood, and it's impossible to stay that way. No more than 30 minutes into it, just seeing your dog's enthusiasm erases any a negativity that you may have it's just a fascinating thing and i love the active nature of it yeah the movement exercise yep going going for a hike taking a walk talk to me about the 
the land access situation, are you, are we talking primarily public land adventure or is there, are there private lands open to public access? How might somebody get on land to hunt? Well, mostly for new bird hunters here, it's going to be public land until they get to know some landowners. But we do have a lot of public land. And, you know, I think my hunting partner and I added it up one day and there's almost 200,000 acres of public land within an hour's drive of Farmville. Hmm. We've we've improved the tools on our agency's website to help folks find those areas. Uh, So the, the technology for being able to scout and never leave your office or home is phenomenal now. All those tools that we didn't have 30 years ago, you had a gazetteer and you had a car or a truck and you went out and you looked and folks can now find places from their computer. So that is a lot. But public land, just about all the public land, at least in South Central and Eastern Virginia, is going to have a bird population of some kind, quail and woodcock, and the hunting is probably going to be fair. You know, I'm not going to uh, try to mislead anyone and say they're going to go find absolutely great or excellent hunting, but there's enough land and enough places to go really keeps it interesting. Yeah, that that helps. I, I mean, I think if you had a level of hunting quality that was maybe subpar and you had to keep going back to the same spot, I mean, that you know, then that starts to feel different in a hurry. But if you've always got someplace new to go check out, that can that can certainly keep the keep the wanderlust and the sense of adventure at a higher level. Oh yeah. And you know, a lot of the successful bird hunters will keep a map or keep some sort of a record of all the places they go. So once you start to learn 15 or 20 different areas, if you're not having good luck in one area, you know, immediately where to go. It it takes time. I'll tell all bird hunters, you know, you're not going to come here and, and immediately have outstanding hunts, but it is possible. And it, you have to be willing to put a little time in, yep. uh, but I think anyone who's willing to train a bird dog probably has what it takes to put the time in to find places to hunt. I do worry that some new hunters will give up too soon if they're not finding a lot of birds early on. So, mm-hmm. you know, that mentor is is very helpful in those regards, too. I, I would encourage a lot of the bird hunters out there to try to find a new bird hunter and, and take them under their wing if they want to see the sport continue to grow. Yeah, and that's something that, as you kind of alluded to, technology allowing us to be a lot more efficient from our desk and scouting and stuff. There are modern platforms that can definitely allow you to connect with other bird hunters a lot a lot easier today than, than that was. You know, you didn't have to go sit in the barbershop and hope the guy, somebody started talking about bird hunting. Now you can kind of go find conversations about bird hunting. So that's an advantage for folks. Yeah. And for the new boat hunter too, I tell them, you know, that mentor's got to know that you're willing to put the time in, you know, there's right. a difference between just saying, Hey, show me where all your good bird covers are, <laughs> you know, versus somebody who says, Hey, I'm really working hard at this. And, and that person can see that they're trying and doing and, and much more willing to help someone when you know they're sincere about what they're doing. Yeah, there's a whole etiquette to that as far as what questions to ask, how to ask them, and how to show that you are interested beyond give me a spot, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So one of the articles that I read, it talked about, I'm always interested in this kind of stuff, it talked about kind of the story arc of quail and the 
point that it referenced was, I think it was 2000 and 2001, which was in a sense, sort of the bottoming out of quail. And it gave the impression that it has improved since then. But could, could you walk me through the era, the time before that, going back to 92, when you started hunting and then leading into 2000, 2001, and then kind of, you know, now 20 years later where you're at with quail? Yeah, I can, uh, I can do that. I can go back and, and I'll say that I think quail have seen peaks and valleys for the last 200 years. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think after World War II, through the 50s and into the 60s, we saw some dramatic changes in farm ownership. Uh, a lot of folks that came back from the war effort uh, moved into the suburbs. And so there were some farms that were abandoned. There was, there was more cover. But the farming methods were modernizing. Some of the crops were changing. Uh, it was like a tidal wave of change for about three decades. And there was a peak in the upland bird hunting in Virginia in terms of the sheer numbers of harvest and the number of hunters was in the early 1970s. And then in the mid-70s, there was a, a recovery in our big game populations. I call it the rise of deer. And there were a lot of small game hunters that previously hadn't had much access to deer hunting, and now deer were becoming more plentiful. So there was sort of a switch from some of the small game hunting over to big game hunting. Mm. But during that same time period, the cover was starting to decline. The things were changing on the landscape, uh, more human population. So the, the birds were starting to decline in the 70s. And then in the late 1970s here, and even further south, we had two of the, the most severe winters that on record, to be honest. And those quail that were hanging on in marginal cover and in marginal areas where they pretty much never came back after that. So, and then the bird hunters will tell you they had pretty good numbers up until the early 1980s. And then there were some changes in the timber industry and I'm not, not pointing a, pointing a finger at the timber industry, just, just honestly saying that harvesting methods and site preparation methods switched from mechanical windrowing and, and prescribed burning to more the the use of herbicides and the uh, types of pines grown have improved. So a lot of changes along those lines. And yep. so from the 1980s, the bird hunters really started to notice that decline. And that's when they started coming to the agencies saying, guys, you know, something bad is going on here. And about that same time, Quail Unlimited was formed as an organization. And then by the late 1980s, the bottom had started to fall and uh, folks were really kind of in a panic mode. And that's when our agency, along with a lot of others, developed quail recovery programs. Virginia had one of the first statewide quail recovery efforts that began in the mid-1990s, which is how I got hired, in fact. But I think it did bottom out in the late 90s into the early 2000s. Mm. It also coincided with some severe drought and some extreme weather conditions. And then through the conservation programs, in 1996, the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service developed what was called the Wildlife Habitat Incentives Program. And it was the first, there were wildlife programs before then, but this was the first one that actually had wildlife in the title. And it was a paradigm shift in USDA uh, where they 
decided at that time that wildlife would be an equal partner with soil and water conservation. So, you know, that was a huge step in conservation for wildlife. And since that time, you know, we're going on almost three decades now of persistent wildlife habitat conservation efforts. We've been beating that drum and getting the word out now for so long. And I think it started to have an effect uh, in the mid, you know, around 2005 or 2006. Yeah. We we started to see enrollments increase in those conservation programs. And uh, Quail Forever came in after Quail Unlimited uh, didn't make it. And other conservation organizations like the Turkey Federation, the Rough Grouse Society, everyone started to focus on habitat. Yeah, I think everyone realized habitat was the one big thing we could do something about. And so, you know, you fast forward in Virginia, we we started our second quail plan back in 2008. And luckily, uh, we were able to hire a team of private lands wildlife biologists, five of them at the time. And over the last decade, they've made over 5,500 landowner site visits in the state of Virginia. Uh, You know, not not all of that's for quail, but a lot of it's for pollinators and songbirds that use similar habitats. So, yeah, and like over the last four or five years, I'm starting to see more bird hunters. Uh, The ones I talk to seem to sense that there's positive change in the quail population. It, it's spotty. It's not everywhere you get, but uh, something good is going on. And I think a combination of all those conservation programs and, and all the teamwork, 25 or 30 organizations have been involved in these habitat efforts. Do so, you, I, oh, go ahead. I, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that, yeah, do you think that if there was – you're saying it's a combination of all these things. If there was something you could point to, I mean, do you think there's more, is there more usable quail habitat on the landscape? Is it perhaps getting quality habitat spread out in a way that allows quail populations to be more, to have more connectivity, all these things that, that help make a population of wildlife more resilient, um, obviously diversity and habitat, all those things. I mean, is there, is there one thing you can point to or not necessarily? I just think it's the long-term realization. You, you go turn the clock back, and a lot of work early on was wetlands. And I think mm-hmm. everyone in history understood the value of wetlands. You you can see a wetland. It persists when you create it for a long period of time. But when you start talking about early successional cover, which to a lot of folks is just thickets, weeds, and brush, yeah. uh, it just took longer for it to sink in that those were valuable habitats, too. Uh, you know, that shrub thicket is not something you necessarily want to take the bush hog to. That's a valuable piece of wildlife cover. And I think more than anything, just the message, we have just, we have gotten that message out in just about every venue. Social media has probably helped increase the awareness. Uh, but I think folks now start to appreciate thickets, weeds, and brush. Hey, that's pollinator habitat. Hey, yeah. that's... That's golden wing warbler habitat. That's Bob White Quail habitat. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. 
New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Yeah, I, I think that rising that rising tide of the pollinators, especially because that's a it has more of a universal appeal. Even though you know you and I love the quail and the grouse, and and many people do, but but you start talking about monarch butterflies and pollinators. Yeah, I, I do think you're right about uh, at least about the messaging of of some of these important habitat landscapes. It does feel like that is is there is a higher level of awareness on a lot of that stuff yeah we we refer to it sometimes as the butterfly that saved the bee that saved the bob white you know there you <laughs> go yeah it's uh yeah and and folks it, it's habitat no matter no matter what it's for it's it's good quality habitat so and i hope it's and i hope this will continue uh the incentives programs are there uh, they they're as good or better than they've ever been or any private landowner that would like to do wildlife conservation work, we can get a biologist to them, visit their property, help them develop management management planning, and help them get enrolled in those programs if they're interested. Now, a lot of folks want to do it on their own, but it, it, it does have costs. So those programs can really help a person who maybe not is, uh, you know, not, not wealthy, so to speak. In your estimation, Mark, outside of habitat loss just downright habitat loss what are the what are the most significant threats to quail but perhaps other other game birds as well in that region well that that's an excellent question and i i uh i be kind of careful in how how i answered but sure I think wildlife disease, uh, what we've seen here, you know, recently with the West Nile virus, having some significant impacts potentially on grouse populations. Uh, we look at highly pathogenic avian influenza that is uh, has the potential to uh, be very tough on upland game birds. And, and those things are always out there. And it, it's also the potential for a disease that you don't even know is out there yet. Right, right. Uh, you know, that that. That frightens me somewhat. Predation is a little bit of a controversial topic. Yep. Uh, I do believe that the the uh, composition of the predator complex has changed somewhat. In Virginia, uh, our coyote population has increased, and it looks like our gray fox population may be declining, but raccoon populations are high, opossum populations are high, so... Predation exacerbates the loss of habitat, so habitat drives it, but without excellent habitat, the effects of predation can can be heightened, so all of those things play a factor in it. Yeah, normal, and, and normally, the I mean, I know this just from spending time working with the folks at Rough Grouse Society, you know, the conversation, we can talk about threats and causes for concern for these birds, but you know, eventually circle back around to, I mean, one of the clearest 
most uh, effective ways to help the birds deal with those threats is to have high quality diverse habitat which in theory would make them more resilient and would allow them to evolve and survive a perhaps a localized predation effect or a, a disease outbreak over here if you have if you have healthy populations across a wider region that's how they survive and thrive i mean is that is that still kind of the the best bet do you think yeah absolutely uh you know i tell folks all the time if you, if you have to choose how to spend your money and you have a limited supply of it, you need to focus on habitat. Now, that's not to say if you have a large property and you have the means, you can start adding some other layers onto that. But habitat is the key. I know I'm talking with the the rough grouse people as well. High-quality habitat is how they overcome these population low points. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It it starts to sound a little bit like a broken record sometimes. Right. hey the truth you know it is the truth yeah i and i and i hear that that sentiment from folks you know they sort of tire of beating the habitat drum but it still seems to be and will always be a critical component i mean it's not something that you can ignore but of course we you know nobody wants to be blindsided by some unknown cause that that we weren't paying attention to but it's not easy to pay attention to all kinds of things that we like you suggest, we, we might, may not even know they exist, right? Yeah, exactly. And and then, you know, environmental contaminants, I don't want to go too far down this road, but when you look at species in general, when we see declines in amphibians, we're seeing declines in bat populations, and, and that means that there's a decline in insects more than likely that, yep. that could be driving that. It, it makes you start to wonder, there, there probably are some things we're missing. And, you know, how, how environmental contaminants and climate change might play a role as well. You know, smart, smarter minds than mine. Can, and mine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is something in the back of my mind. This habitat, no matter what, is going to be what it takes to bring a species back or just to allow them to persist through some environmental uh, issue Yeah. Till that issue is solved. Yeah, it's, it's maybe one of the simplest things and at least something that we have some degree of control over, too. Yeah, and, and even, a, even a person with a backyard can do something, you know. Every little bit helps. Do what you can. Don't talk yourself out of creating habitat because you think it won't help. Yeah. It, it's always going to help something. All right, something I jotted down. What role do hunters play in as far as reporting, whether it's quail sightings or observation, you know, I know just from talking to you a little bit that you've got a network of hunters that you talk to regularly. So what, like what kind of insights and things that they can share with you that are helpful to you? Well, I have a, an avid uh, quail hunter survey and sadly the number of folks involved has fallen off sharply. I'll make a pitch for getting more folks involved, but Hey, we might be able to help you with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I can give you more information for how, how they could contact me, of course. Email is the simplest way, but cool. uh, we call it our Avid Quail Hunter Survey. And they keep records of the number of hours hunted and the number of cubbies flushed and the number of bird ba- birds bagged. And and the big number that I look at is cubbies flushed per hour. Mm-hmm. And that sort of gives us the best trend of how the, the hunting is going. And, and these guys are your, I, I call them the old-time bird hunters, the, 
you know, they, they know how to hunt birds. And if they're not finding them, you know, something is wrong. So, right. But we would love to get more folks involved. It's really, it's really simple. I send out a package of information every October and they simply keep a, a, a real straightforward data sheet. They send in a few quail wings from quail they harvest in case they ever want to do disease testing or some things like that. And then we also run a June call count, uh, but that's not so much the hunters. Some of them are. Sure. But for me, the hunters is just maintaining that personal contact with as many of them as I can. I just love hearing from them. Uh, you know, they'll send me letters. They'll send me emails. They'll come by and see me. They'll give me a phone call. And I just love to talk to them about what they're seeing because they're out there more than anyone. Yep. And they're the best litmus test for what's going on out there. And to be honest, it's how I've been able to see what I think is a modest increase in the quail population because our surveys, again, are not really robust enough to detect a small change. I fear the day when we lose contact with some of these hunters. I hope mm-hmm. we never do. You know, they're like the canary in the coal mine, I guess, in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely of interest to me. And I think different states use use hunter observation. You know, they'll do surveys and states use it at, at varying degrees. And I, you know, certainly understand that, yeah, it would be great if we had, we could run a survey for every species out there and do more and more and more. But obviously it comes down to time and resources. But as you're obviously pointing out, I mean, I think the people chasing these birds in the fall, hunting them, they have an appreciation for them. They have a, you know, they, they value them very highly. And of course, many, many people are willing to, you know, voluntarily submit this kind of information if we can make the information available to them or the survey or make them aware of it. So it's, it starts there, but that collective power of observation, you've got some built-in, you know, geographic dispersal of these hunters and they're chasing them in different regions. And it just, it seems like a really obvious way to gather intel for someone in your position. Yeah, absolutely. And it complements the surveys. If you just relied on the surveys, you would be missing a lot. I think you have to have both. And, and it, and, you know, and I would say too, even with bird watchers, uh, taking it even a step further, it's just having a contact with a human being that's out there on the ground, yeah, able to talk to them because they see and learn and observe. I don't think anyone spends more time in the field than hunters, uh, they're, they're just out there in good weather, bad weather, and they observe things. We have, we One of my colleagues runs a bow hunter survey, and it's amazing the observations that your bow hunters, you know, they're sitting there quietly in a tree stand sure. for hours. On, uh, really, really great information comes from that. So our, our agency is certainly modernized. We're embracing every constituency. We reach out to the hikers and the bird watchers and the kayakers but we also still support our hunters and our fisher fishermen and trappers because it's uh we're here for everybody but we don't want to lose touch with those folks yeah the hunter survey i'm i'm assuming that's voluntary and anybody could participate given the proper information well yes for the quail survey yeah that's exactly correct anybody who would want to participate all they have to do is send me an email and say they would like to participate in the quail hunter survey and i put them on a list and and i'll send them out that package in late october a couple of weeks before the season comes in yeah that's absolutely true 
Uh, we do another survey that's sort of a random survey. It's our general hunter harvest and information trend survey. Mm-hmm. And that is based on licenses, and that is more of a random survey. Uh, but the quail survey, anyone who wants to do it, yeah, I can, can get them. What are, I'm just thinking about the potential applications for perhaps another resource professional is listening to this, or clearly you value the quail survey. What are some things you would share about, you know, how to how to run an effective quail hunter survey? Well, this one dates back many years. And my predecessor here, Mike Fee, he was a small game project leader, and he started this survey in the late 80s, as I recall. And so it really takes initially the project leader for that state to go to these uh, quail groups or whatever group it may be, whether it be grouse hunters, go to some of their banquets or some of their meetings and just talking to them about it. And then you want to keep it fairly simple. It shouldn't take them too much time. It shouldn't be tedious for them. Right. But but really that personal contact with a lot of these these chapters, the chapter officers and just getting to know them and they get the word out to their members is one good way to do it. And then we advertise it also in our hunting digest so it goes out to everybody in Virginia that gets gets a hunting license. Okay. And then what do what might you share with, you know, in this format, podcast format, what might you share with the quail hunter that is going to complete this survey? You know, what do they need to keep in mind as they go in field as far as like timing, timing the hunts and that kind of thing? Well, the big thing is occasionally we'll have two hunters that hunt together that are both part of the survey. And so they have to decide ahead of time who's going to record for that day because, you know, we don't want to double count the coveys per hour. Gotcha. Okay. They, they just need to coordinate a little bit amongst themselves. And, you know, again, coveys per hour hunted, just be accurate about the hour hunting. That doesn't include the drive time right, or yeah. the time you're eating lunch. Just try to just try to record the hours you were actually hunting and then the number of coveys flushed during that time period. And so that dates back a ways, but you have seen a slight increase in that over the, the last decade or so. Yeah, I, I get I get new members every year. I'm, I think I'm seeing more new bird hunters than I am survey participants. <laughs> so I think what I need to do is maybe think about how to uh, translate this into an online survey. Uh, that, that's on my end more than the hunter's end. Sure. I need to modernize and reach out a little more and try to accommodate the modern bird hunters who are doing on their iphone <laughs> well yeah. we may uh like i said we might be might be able to help you with that a little bit mark you, mark you mentioned this is the first time you've been on a podcast and i can definitely tell you that while we have you know we have listeners of course around the country around the world and they definitely vary in age demographic but we definitely have lots of newer and perhaps maybe we could say that everybody that listens to podcasts is a quote unquote modern <laughs> modern bird hunter so hopefully we can reach some of those folks for you mark yeah that, that'd be great I'd, I'd certainly appreciate the help and and again i it would be just as simple as getting them my, my email address and letting them know that i'm interested in talking to them if they want to help me keep track of the quail hunting and the quail population yeah so, all right, let's transition a little bit. I, I would love to hear you describe to me what an ideal, and I'm, I'm very curious about the mixed bag of quail woodcock, but talk to me about what a, what a good quail cover looks like in that part of the world, Mark. Well, 
on private land, I know our hunters focus in on soybean farming close to timber harvest. Anytime that these hunters learn what to look for, you'll see a harvested soybean field and you'll see a young timber cutover anywhere from one year to maybe three or four years post harvest and replanting. And in, and in that part of the world, it's, it's pine, loblolly pine mostly. Yep. So we're that young cutover and you can picture a cutover with blackberry thickets and yep. ragweed and pokeweed and what some folks would call a weedy mess. Whenever that is adjacent to freshly harvested soybeans, then a lot of our bird hunters on private lands key in on that. On our public lands, we have done a lot of legume planting. Uh, we plant a lot of partridge pea and lespedeza. Uh, we also plant food plots of various types, and we try to plant those adjacent to thicket cover. So, you know, I, whether it be quail or woodcock, you, you've got to have some shrubby thicket cover somewhere yeah. close by to hold those birds. Brand new bird hunters. I think sometimes they hesitate to go into the thicker cover. Uh, they're used to maybe just running around the edge of a field, but you really have to get back into that cover. <laughs> and, and you've got to have a dog that wants to get into that cover as well. Yeah. Uh, that's not afraid to get a few, uh, you know, briar scratches. And uh, I know you've seen bird dogs that come out with the tip of their tail bloody from briars. Oh, yeah, and... I got a couple of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... But yeah, looking for thickets, we have, you know, plum thickets and blackberry thickets, greenbrier, sumac thickets, anywhere that's adjacent to some of the feeding cover, like partridge pea and annual food plots like Milo is good from a, a food standpoint. So it's, uh, they got to get out there and scout some, even though you can do some of it from a computer. Ultimately, once you find the general area, you've really got to go out there and on the ground, you know. Yeah, on the note of e-scouting, you mentioned, I think you mentioned some, maybe some state resources. What are some things you could look for via satellite imagery or, or anything like that? Obviously, boots on the ground is sort of the, you know, that's the irreplaceable component. There's That's always going to be at the end of the road for everybody. But what are some things that they could do online on the apps to sort of make their boots on the ground time more productive? Well, that's a good uh, that's a good question. Now they do have the aerial imagery, and some of it is is quite up to date. Mm -hmm. um, any place you have open lands or ag lands on a management area, you can those are pretty obvious. Yeah. And if that aerial imagery is is within the last couple of years, you can see the cutover land on those. Yeah. So that that would be keying in on the early successional cover near some of those open areas would be one thing I would look for. For quail specifically. Yep. And woodcock, of course, you look for drainages. Uh, it's pretty easy on some of the aerial imagery to see the up the headwaters of small creeks. You can see where that starts to break apart and, and, and almost picture the beaver dams and the, the hazel alder and the type of cover that would be up, up in some of those areas. Swampy areas also show up pretty well. Yep. And, you know, wood are usually going to be uh, not too far from something like that. Now, having not spent any time down there myself what what is the terrain like are we talking ele elevation wise i mean are, are we talking flat hilly mountainous what kind of terrain well the piedmont it's hilly from a distance it looks flat <laughs> but <laughs> when you get out in it there, there is some up and down and some hilliness to it 
the coastal plain, of course, is a, is a little flatter, but I tell you, I, it's not nearly as flat as uh, some of the big uh, open farm fields you'll see in eastern North Carolina or uh, or out in the, in the Midwest. It's, it's more rolling even in our coastal plain. Yeah, and the Piedmont can surprise you. It's a, it's a little more rugged than folks might think, but but for the most part, you know, now our grouse hunters in Virginia they they get into some pretty rugged cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all the grouse hunting here is mountainous, and uh, it's not necessarily an old man's game anymore. <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of rolling and uh, not too bad. I, I was curious. I'm glad you mentioned the grouse there. Talk to me a little bit about Virginia grouse hunting at this point. What's the what's the status? Well, uh, we we have a new uh, grouse biologist, Mike Dye. He okay. would be a good person for you to talk to. I won't go into too many sure. specifics, but I think Mike would agree with me that the grouse population has been declining. I've seen it myself. It, it seems like now the farther west you go, the higher likelihood you're going to have of finding grouse in Virginia's mountains. I used to find them fairly routinely on the east slope of the Blue Ridge. Um, and there are still a few there, but you really have to go deeper into the mountains closer to West Virginia before you, you start finding uh, significant grouse numbers. And again, I think that's primarily a habitat issue and West Nile could have something to do with that. Right. I think, uh, it's looking like that that could be compounding the habitat loss. So, yeah, I wish I had a brighter picture to say that grouse were on the rebound, but we're still struggling. Our grouse population is struggling. In the areas that you used to find grouse, are you, you're mentioning habitat loss. I mean, could you go there and just not be able to find the, the early successional habitat or the type of habitat you're looking for? I mean, or are there are there areas that still look and feel that way, but the birds are gone. I think a lot of the habitat is aged out. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's gone beyond the stage that it's it's perfect for grouse. And it's not being created yep. as fast as it's being lost. And I know the Forest Service, they get beat up sometimes for not harvesting timber like they once did. But I think most folks may not realize that the markets for that timber and the type of timber on some of the national forest lands is just not, it's hard to move some of that timber. Uh, the access is difficult. On on a bright note, uh, they are doing a lot more prescribed burning. And I think the grouse hunters need to give that a chance. Uh, I think some of those big prescribed burns are going to prove to be good grouse cover. It may take them a few years to develop that sapling growth that they need, mm-hmm. but their prescribed burning is increasing. So that's a good thing. Yeah, you do need you do need the demand for the timber and the economics have to work to make sense. I was going to ask you about the prescribed burn. That that obviously has um, significant impacts for, for quail as well as grouse. So that's definitely a positive, positive indicator to hear that that's being used on the landscape. Yeah, and in fact, our prescribed burning has increased within the agency over the last 10 years, but for many of our partners, there is a resurgence in prescribed fire across mm-hmm. the board, which is, is wonderful to see. Uh, it benefits so many species, and uh, it's, it's just being adopted more and more, especially on public lands, uh, even more so on public lands than on private lands. And it's, a, it's probably the least expensive and most time-effective management tool that you can use. You can treat more acres at a lower cost 
using prescribed fire than about any anything else you can do. And that's a that's a rising tide that can float a lot of boats, right? When you when you get into that reawaken that seed bank and have a fire go through an area that what results benefits a whole lot of wildlife. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's it's just being applied more and more. We have a Virginia prescribed fire council that's really helping promote fire. Uh, quite a number of states have fire councils now. A lot of our NGO partners like the Nature Conservancy and the, uh, even RGS to some extent and uh, Quail Forever and others are really behind prescribed fire. And our Department of Forestry has uh, has increased their promotion of it as well. So it's definitely on, it's moving in the right direction for sure. If there was something you could tell upland bird hunters Virginia hunters, there is something that they could do to have an impact or create more awareness. Is there something, you know, if somebody asks you, what can I do? What's your response to that? Well, the first thing I would ask them to do is join one of the the NGO conservation organizations. You know, they're always looking for members. Yeah. They're not just looking for members. They're looking for members who are willing to do things. You know, I, I go to some of these chapters and the same eight or 10 guys or ladies are always the ones doing the lion's share of the work, and and they get burned out. So join a conservation organization, but but be willing to do things to help. Uh, a membership's fine, and, and they need that, and they need folks to go to banquets and help them raise money, but they also need people that are actually willing to roll up their sleeves and help actually do things. Got it. So as somebody that has never had the pleasure of trying to shoot a, a rising covey of quail. How hard is it, Mark? Oh, the actual shot itself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, for some folks, it doesn't seem to be as hard as others. So <laughs> <no>. <laughs> I'm one of those others. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, it's a challenge. I tell you what, until you get used to seeing that many birds come up at once, yep. uh, it's a little bit unnerving. <laughs> so, yeah. I guess I have I have seen a very large covey of Huns get up in front of me, and yeah, I was kind of kind of lost. <laughs> yeah, the old bird hunters will tell you to pick out an individual bird. That's what they say. Of course, I've always heard it to be a, a decent shooter of a shotgun. You really don't even see the barrel of the shotgun. You should be focused hard on whatever your target is. Yeah. Your barrel should just be a blur. But if you have to think about all that, you're going to miss. <laughs> right, yeah. It's got to just, the more you shoot, the better, you know. And and I don't shoot enough anymore to be very good, but I've seen some folks that are incredible shots. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you've got your seasons open, is it through the end of the month, through the end of February? Uh, no, our quail season closes on January 31st. Oh, it does, and our, okay. Yeah, and our, our grouse season closes the second Saturday in February. Now, rabbit and squirrel run through February, okay. so there are other seasons, but. Uh, no, we're pretty conservative on our quail season. Yeah. So you and the dogs are you're done for the year, other than exercising and looking ahead to looking ahead to the fall of 2022. Yeah, and I, I get my dog out. I'm lucky. I live on a piece of property. I've got some walking trails and yep. creeks, and I'm always out with my dogs. And and I will occasionally go to a, a hunting preserve. Just uh, well, I'm not ready to give up yet. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, got some fight left in you. Yeah, yeah. Before <laughs> it gets too warm, yeah. <laughs> All right, Mark. Well, where might somebody go to find more information on 
upland bird hunting in Virginia? Is there is there one location you would point somebody to go? Yeah, they can go straight to our agency's website. If they just type Virginia DWR into their search engine, it'll take them to the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources. And on our home page, there are tabs at the top. One is for hunting specifically. And under that tab, there is a there's a great locator, a map locator with a lot of information. And then there are other tabs about our wildlife management areas specifically and, and about all other agency lands as well. So that, that site right there, if you go on our homepage and click on hunting and just play around on that site, tons of good information on there. Cool. And then again, you had suggested that if somebody wanted to get in touch with you specifically about that quail hunter survey or anything else, they could... They could send you an email? Yeah. Yeah. My email is uh, mark, M-A-R-C, mark.puckett, P-U-C-K-E-T-T, at D-W-R dot Virginia, spelling out the whole word, dot G-O-V. So mark.puckett at D-W-R dot Virginia dot gov. Good deal. I will make sure that that is linked in the show notes so folks can find that. and They don't have to scribble it all down. But thank you for sharing that, Mark, and thank you for offering the ability for folks to get in get in contact with you i i certainly hope that maybe there's a virginia quail hunter or two that are interested and maybe they haven't done the quail hunter survey and send a few people your way i hope that would that would be the result of this podcast i'd consider that a win absolutely absolutely nick i thank you so much for for the opportunity to talk about our programs here today yeah my pleasure mark it was great to connect with you thanks for sharing a little bit more about virginia up and hunting with the listeners and me i enjoyed it i'll look forward to keeping in touch with you and i really appreciate your time thank you as well nick you have a great day you too mark Tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Quick reminder: we are presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, and Upland Gun Company. Rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. This is Nick from the Gun Dog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gun Dog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.